Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Greetings, Ed. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff, one of your three co-hosts. The other two here with me, Aaron Lammer and Max Linsky. Hello. Hey, guys. Uh, hey, Evan. The podcast. This week, you hosted it. Uh, who, who was your conversation with? I was privileged to host the podcast this week, Max. Um, this week, uh, I was really excited to talk to Latreya Graham, who is a writer. She's based in South Carolina. Uh, it's hard to categorize her work because she's written so well about so many topics, but she is a contributing editor at Garden and Gun magazine. She's written about the South. She's written about culture, books, music. She's written big features. She's written about uh, sports. Uh, and she also has written a number of really beautiful personal essays over the years. And she has a pair of stories. Well, she has a story in the most recent issue of Outside, which is kind of a follow-up to an earlier piece, which was called We're Here, You Just Don't See Us. That was the original piece. It was about being black in the outdoors, which is another area that she writes about a lot, uh, her life in the outdoors. And then she, her most recent piece is called Out There, Nobody Can Hear You Scream. And it's a follow-on to that. We talk about it a lot. But she also had insights on every topic from the very practical, how do you create a fr freelance career, uh, to how she thinks about her work. Uh, and I really, really enjoyed talking to her. So glad we got her on. This is one of the rare ones, Aaron, where after Evan was done, we got the like... Uh all caps, lots of exclamation yeah, the, points. Yeah, the, the yearly Evan enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't use yes, it all in one place. Um, <laughs> hey, uh, I noticed uh, Evan brought up um, the idea of how to have a freelance career. I have a suggestion for having a fruitful freelance career. Start an email newsletter so people know when you publish stuff anywhere. Do it with MailChimp. They make it easy. They support writers. They support this show, and we thank them. Now here's Evan with Latreya Graham. Latreya, welcome to the Longform Podcast. Hi, thank you for having me, Evan. It's so nice to have you on. Where am I reaching you right now? What am I seeing? 
<laughs> I am in Spartanburg, South Carolina, um, where my parents have lived for 25 years. And that's a place that I wanted to start because I feel like so much of your work is about place and it's about what place means to people and to you and who gets to reside in what place and who gets to feel like a place is theirs. And so I kind of wanted to start with this place, Spartanburg, but maybe more specifically the farm that you write about that you grew up, maybe both. And you've written about this very beautifully in Garden and Gun, but to sort of describe that place and you growing up there and sort of what, how it gathered this meaning for you. Yeah. Um, so Spartanburg, South Carolina is, is in the suburbs. My parents, you know, have a house there. But the farm is where my dad actually grew up. It is like grand family ancestral land. It's about an hour away in Newberry County in this tiny, tiny town called Silver Street. And the population there is very small now. At one point when peaches and cotton were huge things for the South, it had a much larger population and community and churches and all of those things, but it's very much died down. You know, the big thing there now, there's a paper plant and a turkey plant. And if you're driving through and you blink and you miss that one like flashing red light, you've missed Silver Street. <laughs> so um, it, it is a very small place, but that's where my dad is from. That's where he ran away from as soon as he could. You will see this prodigal son-daughter thing return in my work time <laughs> and time again, uh, because you think you need to escape this place that defines you. But, you know, he decided to come back when I was about 10 years old and they bought the house here in Spartanburg and he decided to go back and farm in Silver Street. So that's where most of my family is. Like my grandmother, she just passed this year, but her house is like the center of this family land. And I have an aunt who lives on one side, an uncle that lives on another side. And my dad's farm was adjacent to my uncle Charles's and then up the hill, all of the cousins. So it, it really is this gigantic wow. family compound the first Grams, G-R-A-Y-H-A-M, that I have found in this area are from 1788 and obviously through miscegenation and lots of other things and slave ownership. So being in this space for a very, very, very long time, right? And then the moment I could, I left and I went to, at first I went to <laughs> the governor's school, which is like a residential arts school for the clarinet, which I was good at but didn't love. And as soon as I got out of there, I headed for Dartmouth in Hanover, New Hampshire, which was the furthest I could get away from my family and this farm <laughs> without crossing the Canadian border, right? You know, there was nothing to do here. There was nothing in our downtown. You didn't go there. So I was like, I've got it. I've heard tales of other places. I got to get out of here. <laughs> and you, you just mentioned, so you went to this art school and you were a musician. And in a lot of your bios, you say fifth generation farmer, like this yeah. has been a part of your life. But was the expectation from your family that you would go to college and study something about the farm and come back and take over the farm? Or was the expectation, we don't want you working on this land, we want you to go do something else and have other opportunities? Like what was the approach of of your parents? Yeah, so I don't think they expected me to stay. I knew, I think they knew they couldn't make me and so they didn't try. But the reason my dad wanted me, and I have a younger brother, his name is Nicholas, and he was also a clarinetist. Like he started playing Carnegie Hall when he was like 14 years old. And he's been what? on NPR. Yeah, oh yeah. Like, I mean, he was incredible, but he's like, if you're going to be artists, if you're going to do something like this, you need to be able to feed yourself. So he thought that the land would always be there. If you had to, you could always come back home and you could feed yourself. If you can feed yourself, you can figure everything else out. 
right? And it, it gave us a way of raising money. Like I paid, and I'm proud of this now, but I was ashamed of it before. I paid for Dartmouth and watermelons and okra. Like the whole idea of the produce stand was I needed instruments for the boarding school and I needed a $3,000 clarinet. My father was not going to get up off of that type of money. Like it just was not happening, you know, in 2000, mm -hmm. 2001, like that's not him. He's like, but you can work for it. And so every watermelon you sell, I'll match the money. Right. And then it became this much larger enterprise for me. And I started baking cakes and canning things and learning recipes and doing that. And then my brother basically does the same thing. So it definitely was sort of a means of making money. My family, they also left and had their own identities before coming back you know, to the land. Like my dad was a regional manager with Walmart and he moved all around the country, opening up stores. My mom is from Columbia, South Carolina, but she went to the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City um, and worked for a milliner and had sort of this life in fashion design and art. And then they came back, right? And it was partially because they hit walls in their careers. Um, and my mom ended up going from being a fashion designer to a postal worker. You know, my dad leaving sort of all of this regional management and going back to being a farmer. Um, so I think they knew I had heard tales of other places and they sort of couldn't keep me here. And I think my dad, it would have made him proud if I had gone somewhere like Clemson and majored in agriculture and came back and saved the farm. But, you know, the area that I'm from really needed doctors and lawyers and things that I thought they needed to be able to save this place, right? So I actually went to Dartmouth to be a biomedical engineer. Being able to support yourself and do something for your community was the big thing. And for mm. my dad, it ended up being, you know, farming, having this produce stand, being able to feed the homeless or the unhoused whenever they needed it, being able to help those that were down on their luck and it really not affecting his pocket. That sort of community rapport mattered for him. And he, they knew I had to find my own way to change things. And so when you got to school, was it in college that you sort of started opening an eye towards writing or were you sort of thinking that in the background? It wasn't until my junior year when I realized that I did not love what I was working on as a biomedical engineer. I was taking all of these classes and struggling with them and I was unhappy and I had a nervous breakdown. Like I ended up being medically separated from the college and I was like, I didn't have any hobbies. I'd been like work driven and focus driven, you know, my entire life and not had a lot of fun, if that makes sense. And so I was like, I don't know what I want to do. I knew that I was supposed to like come in and do this thing, but this thing is making me really unhappy to the point where I am like unable to care for myself and be in my right mind all the time. And I, I just, I loved books and I loved words. And I was like, I have to try to do something with this. And so I shifted my major and decided to major in English, but specifically national traditions, and then minored in theater. Did you sort of set aside, how will I ever make money at this and say, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to table that for this part of my life? Yeah. Or, or did you have a kind of plan for how you would turn it into a career? At that point, I thought I would just go on and get a PhD and then I would teach and live happily ever after. And then, um, as I got into my senior year and sort of started running into some of those walls and 
realize the sort of psychological damage that a PhD was going to take on me, I was like, oh, I don't know that I can do this. And that same year, this woman named Kate Taylor reached out to me. She's with the New York Times now. And she's like, hey, I got your number from an eating disorder treatment facility that you attended. And I was wondering if you would write about your experience as a Black woman with an eating disorder. And that essay ended up being called Black and White Thinking. And it was in an anthology that came out in 2008. And so that was the first time that I wrote I went to New York City and worked with her on that piece. I got a check in the mail for it, and I immediately did not leave my bed for a week because I thought I had sold my story. I thought I had sold the entirety of myself because no one teaches you at Dartmouth how to make money. It's all about intellectual inquiry and academia. It's not necessarily about making a living. There's no journalism class that you can take. You don't learn how to pitch or anything like that. I didn't even really know how to write a postmodern essay if that makes mm-hmm. sense. You know, mm-hmm. most of the stuff that I studied, I was big into medieval literature, right? So I can tell you all about 1348. <laughs> I'm not sure I can tell you anything about literature and after 1945. So it was one of those things where I was like, okay, I've sold myself for a couple of hundred bucks is how it felt. And it took a while for me to sort of get out of that and be like, that's not, this is just the beginning of this thing. And there's so much more to it. Um, And then there's no class, again, for this at Dartmouth. And so it just takes picking up magazines and reading them and trying to figure out and understand how they work and how you break into them and and all of that sort of stuff with minimal assistance um, from professors that don't really know how to help you. That's not their fault, right? They are very much in the academic vein of it. And that's sort of their passion. And so it's hard to say, hey, here's a magazine writer that you should talk to because those are two it feels like they're two separate worlds i'm always trying to sort of be the bridge between those two things i don't know that it always works so when you say that you you felt like you sold your your story for a few hundred dollars do you mean that you felt like you had nothing else to say like this was my story and now it's gone and now i'm done or more that you felt like you had taken something private and made it public and you were concerned about that or uncomfortable Yeah. So I was really early in my recovery. So I had, I struggled with bulimia for about 10 years. And this is like the beginning of my recovery period when I thought that my eating disorder was the most interesting thing about me, probably. And I had made it really, really public in the interest of trying to like help other people, but not realizing that I would live beyond that moment, if that thinks. Like, I mean, I'm floored at the idea. So I was like 20 when I wrote that. The idea that I'm 34 now, that I've been alive this long, is a marvel to me. I never thought that I would get here. And so, yeah, I really struggled with like thinking that was the end and that I had nothing else to say. I was also worried people wouldn't get it. It's a very vulnerable place to be because no one was talking about eating disorders and Black women sort of at that point and all of the stresses on our body, both from colorism and sort of fat phobia and control and all of that. So yeah, I did. I thought that like, that's it. There's no more you've told this. And now what? It's interesting because I feel like you, hearing you say that, you've returned to those vulnerable points again and again over your writing. So it wasn't like you said, I'm done with that. Like you address mental illness and you address struggles with depression and that experience it seems like it could have led you the other direction where you could have said, okay, I'm not going to write about myself ever again. And when you do return to it, is it driven? I always wonder this when people write these deeply personal, vulnerable essays, like 
is it driven at the reader in that you're trying to fo- connect with the people out there who you think will identify with that? And or is it you working through it in your writing and writing about it is a form of therapy would be the cliche way to say it for you? Oh, it's, it's never therapy. I hate it. <laughs> like, it, <laughs> okay. it is the worst. That, that um, answers that. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. Um, <laughs> I felt like when I decided to enter recovery that I couldn't find stories of people that had survived, right? Like, you know, when you go to these treatment facilities, you end up on all these lists and you get the emails of all the people that have died, that you were around, right? And so I was like, I have to let other people that are struggling with this thing know that you can survive it. It's not always easy. It's not always comfortable, right? Like, and so my goal as a person, not just as a writer, is to be the adult that I needed when I was younger. Hmm. Um, And so that's why I go and talk to college classes. That's why I write some of these vulnerable things to let people that are struggling know that they're not on their own. And there's no way that I can talk to every person individually. So I really do try to put it on paper, but it is, I, I have to be unmerciful to myself, I think, in order to do it. I really do try to dissect myself and my mistakes and just kind of say, here's the full deck of my life. Take from it what you need, right? But I'm not holding out on you. Yeah, and you, and you don't also seem to feel the need to like inject sort of artificial optimism in there either. I mean, sometimes you're just, I'm worried about this and this is threatening to overwhelm my life. And there we are. Like, I'm going to write about that. That feels delivered to me. I don't know if you think about it that way to like give someone the feeling that it's okay to be in that space where you don't have the optimism, I guess. Yeah. Well, because I, there's this phrase now that people are using called toxic positivity, where it's like, it's all going to be fine in the end or whatever. And I was like, maybe things are not fine. Maybe things like it is okay for things not to be fine because it makes you feel bad for things not being fine or for not feeling fine. And that like feeling bad does nothing for you, right? Sitting in despair, that like, I call it a despair cycle, does nothing except help the thing that you're up against kill you faster. And there's a place for gratitude. And I think that hope is an active practice. It is a discipline if you utilize it correctly. So I'm not big on passive things, but like those spirals are very passive. You're just sitting and thinking and overthinking. And it's just like, give yourself space to feel what you feel and acknowledge that because that's something that I did not do growing up and then say, okay, what comes next? And so that's been sort of my way of combating overwhelm. But a lot of the things that I write, especially those early, early op-eds are things that I'm anxious about or frustrated by or ashamed of. Shame can be a powerful motivator for literature. And so I often am thinking about the stuff that's keeping me up at night, but you know, trying to figure out how to use those emotions to move the conversation forward. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. 
The app has lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listen to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly the voices sounded totally natural and human to me this listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free now normally you get a two-week free trial but listeners of long form get a whole month free go to listening.com slash long form or use the code long form at checkout listening your life just got a lot easier Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. I think anyone listening up to this point might think you were just a like a personal essayist, basically. Yeah. But but also right. you do a huge amount of journalism. So I want to go back one step and talk about how you got from that original. First of all, it's it's amazing that someone from the Times just sort of plucked you out of a list of people to write an essay. That that seems like random. Yeah, it does. And like some of what happens to me feels really serendipitous and I'm just kind of like I I don't know where this came from but like take it and so yeah. like and when I talk about sort of hope and prayer is a for me is an intentional voicing of needs and intention it is like I have this phrase where I'm like I never want to pray for something that I don't have the ambition to take action and follow up on and so it is one of those things like it could have come my way and I could have ignored the email or whatever and put it off. But I was like, no, this is something that you're capable of doing and sort of rise to the challenge and do it. But yeah, Kate Taylor was with uh, the New York Sun at that point. So she goes to the Times a couple of years later. But it is one of those moments where I put my name on this list at this treatment facility and was like, yeah, if people need to talk to me to understand what it's like to live in this body, then fine, they can call me. And she did. And so how did you build from there? So I took a couple of years. I took a couple of years off. So I wrote that essay in like 2007. It came out in 2008. And I didn't do another major essay, op-ed, anything, basically until 2015. So there's that seven year gap in between. Um, I graduated college, you know, fall of 2008, moved to New York City, right as the Great Recession is happening and take a minimum wage. I know, I've got my own apartment and everything and 
fully thought that I was going to be like carrying sex in the city or something and you know have a magazine column in no time and that's not how this works that's not how any of this stuff works right <laughs> um you know so get there and plug in my tv see everybody walking out of Bear Stern with their stuff and I'm like well I don't have a job now and like send out a hundred applications and I end up getting an interview with the New York Society Library which is I think like the second oldest library in the country and the oldest library in New York so like their charter is from King George, it precedes the founding of the country. And so a lot of their maps and things like that, I mean, they have a huge archival section. So, and I start working as a library page for $7.25 an hour on the Upper East Side. And I am immersed in literature in a very, very different, very real time way than I was at Dartmouth, right? You know, um, Tom Wolfe comes in, a lot of these major authors are working on their books upstairs you know, researchers and people come in to use the archives and we pull maps for them and stuff. And we, you know, walk them around and give them tours and things like that of the space. So it's like living, breathing, working writers. And I'm in this building with them, which is, I'm not making any money, but like, you know, I'm getting to like digest art in a different way. And the New York Society Library is literally across the street from the Met. And this is at the point where you could pay whatever you could or wanted to, to go into the Met. And so like, I could not afford to like eat lunch on this side of town, but I could afford to go to the Met. And that is what I did with my lunch hour, right? And like really started sort of developing some of these skills and new ways of seeing new ways of thinking about language, new ways to connect some points and figure out systems that I didn't have before. So I got there. And then um, about that time, people were talking about graduate school and stuff. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that would be cool. I ran out of money. <laughs> so this is, I would say, 2010, the end of 2010. And I ran out of money. And I'm like, I can't keep doing this. I didn't know about food stamps. I didn't know about any of these ways to support yourself in some ways. And so, you know, I'm taking the bus and the subway to work and I'm walking the 60 blocks back every day to like save funds. But you know, I would stop, I would get a book, I would stop in Central Park and I would read near Harlem Mirror on the way home to sort of break it up. But I was just like, I, this grind is not getting me anywhere. I'm doing interviews with magazines and places and they just don't have the funding or they eliminate positions and all that because we're still in this recession and recovery period. And then I go home. So I moved back to Spartanburg and I work at the produce stand for about a year and I start thinking about getting out again, right? The fastest way to get out is to go to graduate school. <laughs> and so, you know, I thought about it before leaving New York City, but I was like, I'm going to do this. And the number one program in the country at that point for creative nonfiction, because I didn't want to write fiction. I wanted to write about true things. I knew that, even though I didn't know how to do that, if that made sense, other than sort of writing down interviews people told me and sort of shaping them, like as told to's and sort of like this idea of oral history and folk tales was like really my first medium because it was the only thing I knew how to do is take somebody else's words and be like, okay, beginning, middle and end, moral sort of thing at the bottom. Um, and apply to the new school. And it feels like also by some miracle, but maybe not, I got in, they accepted me. So I made my way back to New York City. And I did that for two years, 2011 to 2013. So that practice teaches you that confessional New York style. I didn't realize quite yet that there were going to be some major structural differences between the way I wrote 
as a Southerner and what they expected living in New York City, hmm. if that makes sense. And a lot of my stories were too circular, a little too folksy. There, I mean, there was some major criticism about the way I set scenes or dialogue. So, you know. And, and when, the, when you say there was criticism and it didn't match up with what they wanted, were you, were you thinking and feeling well, they're wrong. Like, I have a different way of storytelling and it's right? Or are you thinking, oh, oh, I guess I have to adapt what I do to make it match what they're teaching? I thought I had to match the model. So there are probably three or four half done, like, manuscripts, you know, of stuff just kind of floating around <laughs> in my house that, like, I was ashamed of because it, it was, again, that same clash of like being Southern and not being good enough for New York, if that makes sense. Um, because, you know, at least until the internet sort of decentralized everything. New York was it. That's where you wanted to be. That's where the publishers were. That's where all the great writers were. And some of these are award-winning creatives that you're learning from. And, you know, you take what they have to say to heart. And this is, again, I'm at this point, I'm pretty young. So I'm 23 to 25. So still in terms of sense of self, filling that out and feeling that out for myself. So I took a lot of their criticism to heart and tried to write that way. And I got away from some of the like writing down oral traditions and the history-based stuff that I was doing and ended up diving into essays, which I didn't want because it didn't give me, it, it didn't give my body the historical context that I was after. You know, it didn't anchor me in anything, and that's not who I was. But, like, I was like, okay, I want the good grades, right? Because at this point, you're still getting graded. I want to graduate, you know. I want them to recommend me for stuff, and so much of that stuff matters, especially yeah. coming from these fairly well-known writers, getting recommendations from them. And all that stuff matters when it comes to getting a job. Little did I know I wouldn't be getting one that way anyway, but breaks your will if you think you need to be in this place to survive. So I changed my style. I can see little pieces of me in it. I went back and looked at my thesis, I guess about a week or two ago to like see how far I'd come in some ways. And I was like, that part sounds like me. That part sounds like me. I can see it. And I'm just like, man, there was some really good stuff in this. You have to go back and think about it. And you mentioned along the way this, you went home for a little bit, worked at the produce stand. And for you, was that pushing you forward? Like, I don't want to end up going back and working at the produce stand. Or was it like an anchor as in, I can always go back and work at the produce stand. So I'm free to give this a try. Yeah. So Spartanburg is complicated in some ways. And people here will, a lot of people, I won't say everyone, will never see me as more than the farmer's daughter or the watermelon man's daughter. Um, so I was a little embarrassed by it because, you know, I had this Ivy League degree, I'd lived in New York City and done all, all of these things. And yet here I was, right? I couldn't hack it in New York. I couldn't make something of myself. So I was a little embarrassed by it. But I also saw the community value in being around um, and being able to bring in some new ideas and tell people how to try things like jackfruit and, you know, prepare some of this other stuff, you know, in terms of like impacting the community with healthy eating and new ideas and all that sort of stuff. I thought that was cool, but I also thought that there was more in me than just being a farmer or being sort of this type of community advocate. And I felt in some ways that I'd already worked too hard to do something that I could have done 
without leaving South Carolina. There was a lot of sacrifice mm. that mm-hmm. like went into going to Dartmouth because once I was medically separated from the college, they never expected me to come back. Right. Like, so it was one of those, like, I no longer had an email address. I was no longer a Dartmouth college student and, you know, working my way back into that system. And then after having taken a total of a year and a half off graduating on time, it means taking more courses than everybody else, working longer hours than everybody else and putting in sort of this, um, lots of tears, lots of talking to Dartmouth tower at like 2 AM leaving the library sort of thing. Um, no partying, no study abroad programs, none of that stuff um just to be able to hold a sheet of paper that to my dad you know when you see that graduation picture of him and he's like holding it i didn't even hold my diploma that day my dad held it and it was worth so much money to him and it was worth you know not very much to a lot of other people right but i was like i have to like make something of myself and i didn't think that i could do that in spartanburg it would take a long time and it would actually take my dad dying for me to totally understand that I could like do what I wanted from Spartanburg because of the internet. You've written about that. That's what brought you back was his, his illness, right? Yeah. So he was diagnosed with kidney cancer, my second semester of my second year in graduate school. So that is the thesis semester. And so I would go to school part of the week in New York City and I would swing down to Spartanburg and pick him up and then he was the treatment center here in Spartanburg would not treat him so we got a second opinion in Georgia but that also meant having to drive six hours round trip for things like that and he needed a primary caregiver so that was my job and at that point I didn't think that he was going to die but I knew our lives were going to change and so I was trying to write down as much as I could from him because even though I'd been under his tutelage my entire life, basically, there was still so much that I didn't know. You know, my great aunts and things were starting to pass. My community was dying. And he and my grandmother were, in some ways, the last two great uh, tomes of wisdom, like walking, talking tomes of wisdom in my life. And so Mm -hmm. I just spent hours interviewing them, thinking it was going to be part of my thesis and really trying to figure out how to infuse or frame the oral histories that I was collecting for my family and for my community and put a personal essay frame around them. Um, And so that's also how I started freelancing. I realized I needed to like find some way to make money, but you know, I'm not stationary. I'm in New York, I'm in Spartanburg, I'm in Atlanta and have to kind of keep moving around. It's like, well, now we have the internet. How can I harness this thing and start some sort of cash flow? Because cancer is expensive. Cancer is really, really expensive. And like one of the drugs he was taking, they had insurance through my mom, but it was like $10,000 a month. We shuttered the produce stand because I couldn't do all of the things. And that meant no income coming in from there, right? You know, my brother's in graduate school at Dartmouth. There's no income from him, right? And so you got to figure out how how to get flexible, and freelancing allowed that. And I've always done it. I've never had a job that has offered me benefits or pay time off or a sick day or anything like that. So it's always been either working for myself or my family. That's basically been all that I've, I've held. That's incredible to, to, to jump into freelancing when you're trying to prop everything up 
and that's your income that you're going to use. It's, it's just so hard to start from zero. I and mean, that's what I'm always telling people yeah. when they want to get into freelancing is like starting from zero is just the hardest thing to do because your first however many pieces, you're probably going to be chasing the checks for for months, you know, uh. so... It's like the money doesn't come when you turn the thing in. Right, right. Well, five years later, I am just going to say that sometimes you are still chasing the checks. Um, the checks <laughs> oh, are yeah. bigger. The checks are bigger. <laughs> there are more zeros, but you're still very much chasing the checks and you're like following up on this or, you know, they just forget to pay you sometimes, which I don't understand how that works. But, you know, the system is set up for you, them to hire freelance writers, write something and get paid. So when the back end of the system just doesn't happen, yeah, the, it, there's no explanation for that. Like that's pure malice. Yeah, it is malice. It is also a lack of empathy and compassion, especially because if you've never had to exist worrying about money, where your next meal is going to come from or anything like that. I think that I get to write some of the pieces that I write or I write the way that I write because I know what it's like to be one step away from losing everything, right? I know what it's like to, especially when, when he was at the very end, I was like, do I pay for his medicine or do I pay the electric bill? Can I do your both? Fa your father yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And so I understand what it is like to be between a rock and a hard place and be forced to choose. Right. And so understanding that, understanding where the holes are in the system, the, where people are falling you know, out of it. My job is to look for the cracks as a journalist and say, how did we get here? And I think there's that saying someday this pain will be useful to you. Um, and I live in that. It's just like, I realize it's all copy and like, I try to write it down because someday it will matter. Maybe it will destigmatize something for somebody else, but yeah, it's brutal. What was the first sort of long reported piece that you did? Was it the, was it the SB nation? Yeah, it was the Josh Norman story, the Dark Josh Knight Unmasked, yeah. which like I, I kind of can't believe Glenn Stout gave me ten thousand words. So Glenn Stout was the editor. He was. Glenn Stout was the editor of the SB Nation at that time. Yeah, yeah. SB Nation long form. Um, so I know there were sort of two separate entities for a while. The long form has collapsed since then, and it's a shame I only got to do that one piece. But like, man, that kind of space, like, it's a dream. I had never written anything, reported, and every time I teach, I show people this pitch letter because he knew that I could tell a story. I was like, listen, I know I don't have the clips that you want for me, but I know I have something and I know how to tell a story, right? And here's why I'm the person to tell this story. Like that is the thing that differentiated me, I think from anybody else that could have pitched a Josh Norman story because, you know, the Panthers play here. I'd gotten to talk to this guy. I had access in this really unique way. I went to Carolina Panthers training camp to understand my dad. I did not go for a story. And it ended up that the story sort of landed in my lap. And I was like, I have to see what happens next. But yeah, so he eventually, um, you know, assigned it and gave me 10,000 words to try to work out this thing. You know, Josh Norman is a cornerback or was cornerback for the Panthers. And he's still in the league, right? He he's... is. He is playing for the Washington football team now. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I just... I, I appreciate the name change. It was important. Y'all, Washington, if you need me to work on this for you, just call me. <laughs> call me. I'm sure we can come up with something. Um, but he did go there, and he was underestimated when he was at Carolina. And whenever he left and signed with Washington, he was the highest paid cornerback in the league. 
and I got to watch that season happen. Again, this is one of those moments. I didn't know that that was going to be the year that the Carolina Panthers go to the Super Bowl, right? I didn't know that, like, at the end of that year, he was going to leave. It was just one of those being in the right time, in the right place at the right time. But then the story, a lot of the story is about football, but so much of the story is about the town that he grew up in and in South Carolina. And so that feels like returning to what you were saying before, like something that you understand about the way he grew up. That's another sports writer coming in, even who was given 10,000 words might not understand. Yeah. He grew up right across Lake Greenwood separates Greenwood, South Carolina and Silver Street, South Carolina. So this is a place, an area, a region that I know really, really well. And even the parts of it that I didn't know, I spent a week driving through and observing like some of these pieces, that piece came together, it took about four months, right? So I had a little time and it was digital, it wasn't print. And so that sort of allows you to play with the timeline a little bit, but, you know, really spending time in the space, looking at the trees, sort of seeing, you know, the double wide where he grew up, seeing the family land and all of that sort of stuff in order to sort of set that scene. But yeah, and I try very hard, especially now, not to take things that are attached to places that I don't understand. Like an editor came to me and was like, hey, I want you to write a book about Flint after a piece that I put out. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I respect this place enough to know that I don't know enough about it to do a good job, so I'm gonna say no, right? So even if you go to a place, do you really understand it? Do you understand all of the forces at play? Are you able to investigate them and sit with them and see what they're doing to the people in your story? And that's sort of what I don't, care for about uh, parachute journalism sometimes and the snap judgments that it makes because um, it's often unfair to the people that are left behind. Um, You know, when a major news story happened in Silver Street, the Anthony Hill murder that I talk about in this new outside piece, you know, reporters came to town, the new Black Panthers came and, you know, made a fuss. And I was working at the produce stand in Silver Street at that point. And, you know, my grandmother, I, I sort of asked her what the deal was with it and like why people weren't engaging with these people that had come to town. And she was like, well, those people get to go home and we still have to be here. And I've never forgotten that and how it makes people feel, right? When sort of the lights go out, you know, the cameras are off and everybody goes away and you're left, you know, sort of in the wake of this big thing that nobody has to grapple with and trying to figure out how to make that more bearable for the people that are left behind. So I try not to leave chaos in my wake when I go in for a story. Well, you brought up the outside piece. Let's talk about that. Our pieces, now a pair of pieces. So the first outside piece, tell me how that came about. So it is one of those sort of long chains of who you know, in some ways. So I'd worked with this photographer named Andrew Cornerlack on a story about Jason Brown, who was a center in the NFL and quit to become a farmer. Andrew did some outdoor recreation photography work and he was like, you should meet my friend. She writes for outside. And through this way, I ended up being introduced to my editor, Alex, for that piece. Alex Heard? Alex Heard. Alex was great. And he was like, do you have any pitches about you know, Black people in the outdoors or sort of circling around this idea? And I had two that I sent him. One was sort of about exploring the dry tortugas because in my dad's storytelling, the dry tortugas were the end of the world. 
in some ways. And, you know, that was where he talked about pirates and rebellions and black people escaping into the swamps and into these coastal areas and things like that. And I was like, this is a story. And I still want to tell that story. I've not told that story yet of spending time in that space. And the other one that I had was sort of talking about why black people don't spend more time in wild places. And he's like, that one, we want to, I want, you know, I want to talk about that one. And I was like, well, that's cool. I still want to do this other story at some point. And it's still hanging out there like three years later. And eventually I'll make it to the Dry Tortugas and, and talk about it. But so he was like, I'm really interested in this. What do you have to say? What are you sort of working with in this vein? And I was like, I want people to understand why we aren't where they think we should be. And so my first job, I think, with that piece was trying to explain. If you look at the two outside pieces, you know, I'm heavily referencing statistics from different places and historical incidents. And I've got Hurston and Baldwin and Richard Wright. Like, you know, I'm, I'm really like packing this with as much information to do as much heavy lifting as I possibly can. And I think that piece is maybe 5,500 words. Uh, and that audience is very different for that first piece than it is for the second piece. In that first piece, I am writing for white people because I am trying to explain something that black people already know. That 2020 piece, I am writing to black people, white people simply get to watch for the most part or digest in that way. So there's sort of two parts to the first essay. There's there's the erasure of history part of it. Right. You know, what was here, what was in these national parks. And then there's the who's going now and why. Right. And why do certain people feel like they're not comfortable going? And that it seems like the second one, that's what prompted the influx of mail that caused you to to write the additional outside essay. So what what happened when you wrote the first one? Like who did you hear from? Yeah. I heard from a lot of people, a lot of white people that were like, thank you, I never thought about this. You know, I understand this now, but what what do we do next? There was a lot of like that sort of, tell me what to do so I can do it and feel better kind of thing, um, mm -hmm. you know, in that moment. And those I could like send them resources or say, this is my reading list and some of that other stuff. So I would probably say about 50% of them where that we'll talk about fan mail because there's obviously the blowback mail which kind of you know i read it to make sure they're not going to blow up my house and then it goes i archive it for later because i'm like at some point that hate mail will be useful to me too but talking about people that were really writing to me and not just reacting to me it was about 50 percent that and then the next maybe 15 percent were just by people saying thank you for seeing us it's amazing to hear these stories see these stories being talked about in a mainstream magazine because that's not something that was happening at least on a regular basis. There were a couple of people like James Edward Mills um, is a mountaineer that does a lot of writing and is telling some of these um, stories, particularly um, around uh, mountaineers of color, black mountaineers, and doing some of these expeditions and writing about them, whereas I sort of dig a little bit more into the historical. But yeah, that wasn't happening. And something else that like people really reacted to that I have struggled with is that my face takes up an entire eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper in these magazines, right? I mean, we're talking big nose, full lips, braids, like the whole thing. And that was not happening as much there. Definitely, I don't think was happening at outside. Aisha McGowan was on the cover of mine, but that was like 
a show-stopping moment, and then you get it again with L. Renee Blount, who's on the cover of this September-October 2020 issue, but, like, that is not happening a lot of places. I think it will start happening more because people are demanding it, but, like, that, you stop, and you're like, oh, my God, there's a Black woman on the cover. Like, in magazines, like, growing up, that my mom would be like, can you stop by the newsstand and get this? You know, the Italian Vogue that had four Black models on the cover. I mean, I remember that back in 2008 because it was such a groundbreaking moment, right? Um, and my mom doesn't read Italian. She literally got it because there were there was Black people on the front and there were Black people inside. And so those sorts of moments you just never forget when you're not highlighted that way. And then to open up the magazine and see a Black writer on the inside taking up a full page of her face, you know, and then later in it, you know, my mom shows up, my grandma, my dad, like all of these black people, <laughs> you know, it was a family affair in some ways for that first piece. So what was the sort of last slice of uh, mail that you got? Um, so about 35% of it was people that were, you know, newbies or wanted to try exploring new places. They either wanted recommendations of places that I felt safe that they could go to or they wanted to know, you know, sort of how do you navigate this or is there an app or some things like that. And some of them were just like, how do I do this? I want to take my kids outside. You know, are there things, things that you recommend? And some of that stuff you can send them to places like Outdoor Afro or other black meetups if they want to do it in a group. But a couple of them were, hey, I've had this really scary incident outside. How do I keep it from happening again? And I referenced one of those in the article. Her name was Alexandra. And, you know, she had signed up for this campground with her husband. And, you know, there was a Confederate flag hanging over the check-in desk. And it's like, it's dark. We have nowhere else to go right now. And we have to stay here. And she talked about her emotions, right? Because she has a little girl. I'm sure that it's been two years, so she may not be as little now. But she had this child with her. And what it was like to just like spend the night in fear. And she's like, how do I keep this from happening to me again? You know, and that just, that sat with me. That sat with me for a really, really long time. And sometimes other people would just talk about, you know, bad things that had happened to them outdoors or ways people had made them feel. And I just, you can't say, oh, it's gonna be okay or it's gonna be fine. Or because like, if you say, you know, here's how you can keep it from, happening again, you're sort of putting the blame on, it's a victim blaming thing, right? Like, you know, if you had only done this differently, you could have spared yourself whatever. And that's not always true. And so I can't, I can't lie. I cannot lie to these people that are trusting me with their feelings and experiences. So I just don't say anything. And so what brought you to the point of deciding to sort of answer them collectively? I just, I couldn't sleep. I like could not live with myself any longer in some ways. You know, I talk about sort of writing, what am I frustrated by? What am I ashamed of? And particularly in this moment between Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd. So like that space between the videos coming out, um, which I guess was maybe two weeks or something like that between learning about this Ahmaud Arbery video. He was shot and killed earlier than that. But you know, sort of sitting with like, wow, this guy was on a run, right? And then seeing the second film come out, because for a while it, it was like, I don't answer these things because I have nothing good to say. And I was like, not having something good to say shouldn't keep you from responding. And I saw how the world 
was reacting and I saw the heaviness that like my fellow explorers were carrying and sort of some of the anxiety and sadness and the weight of this thing. And it just kind of ate at me. And it had been on my mind most of the two years, like just in the background for the two years that I'm sort of experiencing this. Cause like the letters don't come all at once, you know, like they're, it's every two weeks or so, you know, over two years. So we're talking a hundred letters of, you know, wanting to know how to be safe outside, right? Like, so this is, this is not something that ever totally goes away. And then when the eruption starts, to happen and I'm witnessing it, I was like, I have to tell them what I know. Like, and the only reason that I went over and re-examined that trauma that I had in these spaces was for Black people. I was like, I care enough about my community, about my friends, about Black people to talk about this and hope that they understand and can get some relief from this. And so every day I just like woke up at my desk and like sat down at my desk at about 4.30 in the morning. I write very, very early. And I was like, God, I hope they get it. Like I'm not super religious anymore because I was from an extreme evangelical version of Southern Baptist. But I was just like, God, I hope they get it. I was like, if you are out there, like, I hope they get it. I hope that they understand. And I just sat down and wrote. So like most of that essay is first take that you see. So I, I worked with Alex for the first piece. I worked with Gloria Lou for the second piece. And she was my editor at Bicycling when I worked on this story about learning to ride a bicycle again so that I could ride with Bo Jackson. She moved over to outside. And, you know, we just kind of had a conversation about sort of the direction outside wanted to head in and covering more than like summiting peaks, right? And things that they've generally been known for. And I was like, I have something that's eating at me that I really kind of, need to like work through would you guys be interested in reading it and I told her about the letters I was like I've got to talk about these letters and they picked it up for digital and then I I started writing it and turned in maybe the first 3,000 words and she was like I think this is for print but we have to do it in like the next week and a half oh Um, that's so But I mean, it was one of those, like, I went back and like looked at my draft before we sat down to talk about this. And I was like, almost every line, like, it is still there of that first mm-hmm. bit. And I'd written the first 3,000 words, and then I turned in another 5,000 words. Three or four days later, I worked on it over the weekend, you know, and so some of that stuff didn't make it. And the gun was in that second section, and that got moved to the top. But most of what you see is what I wrote longhand and then sort of put in word and sent off to her because, and that's what I mean by it is the rawest, realest essay. I didn't, I knew sort of internally what the structure would be, but I did not sit down and create an outline with plot points and say, oh, I'm going to go here. Oh, I'm going to go there. I just like asked in chair and wrote. And did you have to go revisit, re-report, research the murder that happened when you were younger? Oh, the 2010 Anthony Hill. So um, I did not. I remember that vividly. And there were a couple of newspaper clippings about it and things that I could find. But it is one of those things. And like a lot of what I write about the South is stuff that there's no Wikipedia entry for um, Mm -hmm. in some ways. And so, you know, I was like, I know I remember this thing. And Anthony Hill was actually in that first 2018 piece. And then Alex and I took it out. 
Uh, right. And so it was one of those things when I reached out to Gloria and we talked about this and I was like, this is something that I, I had in the first draft of this 2018 piece. And I regret not fighting harder for it. It cannot come out this time. Right. Like, and she was like, okay. Like it was, it was very much like, because it was real, like, you know, this dragging his body happened in front of my grandmother's house. Right. It happened right in front of our family land. And it was very real for all of us. And that's why I sort of say in the second piece, you know, before I was light on the violence and heavy handed on the hope, and now I have to be heavy handed on both, right? And that's what I mean by that. Like, I, I can't pull any punches. I'm not going to edit myself or my fear or anything out of this to make this a well-rounded, beautiful package. And I, I don't think, I think it's an effective package, but I don't think it's an, a beautiful package for the second piece. I did go back and re-report Abrams Creek to make sure that the terror was real and that though, even though I had the photos of, you know, the fire, uh, like it's one of those things that like, because I think everything is copy, I take photos like incessantly, you know, and so I just kind of, you know, when I was driving through Abrams Creek that first time, you know, I've got a picture of me, you know, as I, I um, get out of the car on the parkway, which they call the dragon because of the way it whips back and forth, you know, and I've taken a picture with the sign and then I'm like, oh, this is a cool vista and get out here. And then I get to the bottom and, you know, have this picture of, of the lake and Fontana Dam and all of this sort of stuff. And I even have a picture of like the Abrams Creek sign and stuff like that. And I've got some pictures of the Confederate flags. So I'm like, I kind of can't believe this shit. Nobody will ever believe me if I don't take a picture of this. And that's very much sort of like, <laughs> that's being black in America. Nobody will believe me if I don't have a picture of this, right? And the same thing when I see the first uh, fire, I don't take a picture of because I'm like, okay, that's weird. Just a guy like burning. Yeah, he's burning this huge thing. Just leaves in his yard or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's, we're talking like, trees trees this is not like uh -huh. somebody has like cleared a field sort of jam um you know so these huge bonfires and the first one i was like oh that's weird and i was like the second one i'm like that's kind of uncanny like the first one made me feel some type of way the second one makes me feel some type of way so i take a picture of it and you know um the only thing that i don't have a picture of from that incident is the dog. And that is because at that point, I'm like so spooked by the whole thing that like, I just don't have it in me to like do that. So just to frame it a little bit, because pe yeah. people should go read the piece, but I mean, um, you're planning to go for a hike and yeah. you sort of encounter these increasingly menacing signs. Yeah. Uh, scenes and then decide to abandon it. But at the time you were taking the photos just to, to show someone else, like you won't believe what I saw. You weren't taking them thinking, were you taking them thinking I'm going to write about this and no one will believe me if I don't take some photos of this. No, I had zero plans to write about this because all of that was an accident. So I'd gone to the Smokies for this writer's residency, six weeks in the Smokies, March and April. And I got there and I realized they like had no information on black people, like where visitors could see it. And I was like, okay, this is gonna end up being my job. So I go to um, Townsend where the National Park Archives exist. And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna see what they have. And I like basically leave with one sheet of paper. That's kind of, that's what they've got. He eventually digs up some other things, but I actually, I wasn't even going for a hike. I was just trying to go for a drive. Like I just needed to clear my head. And I learn about places by driving them mostly, like just kind of seeing what's out there and, and saying, oh, I you know ran into 
this and, you know, asking, um, most of the board members lived in this area and to say, oh, I drove by this place or I hiked, you know, this and things like that and have things to talk about and really understand where you are and how all these pieces fit together because it's a massive place to try to learn in six weeks. Um, so, you know, I am doing this drive and my GPS drops out. Like there's no cell service, there's no nothing. So I really end up getting lost and making my way into the Abrams Creek section of the park. I get down there, I'm lost. And I'm like, oh, this is like part of the national park. You see the sign, wherever there's a sign, generally speaking, there's a ranger station and there's a ranger. They can tell you like how to get back where you belong and all of that sort of stuff. And there's none of that. The ranger station is closed for the season. That first 3000 words, Abrams Creek is not in it. I'd almost like buried that experience, which is why I went back to fact check it to make sure my memory was as good as I thought it was, even though I had the pictures, I was like, is the fear still there? Is the terror still there? Do you still feel this way about this place? Like, is there something truly about this place? Because again, you know how I feel about snap judgments. I hate when somebody comes in, you know, reads a place in 15 minutes and is like, this is terrible, right? I had to give this place a fair shake. So, I, you know, I'd written the essay and had this Abrams Creek piece in there. And I was like, Gloria, I'm going to go do a thing that you are not going to approve of that I need to do in order <laughs> to make sure that this is right, right? And I was like, I'm gonna take my Garmin inReach with me and I'm gonna, like I have multiple tracking devices in case I get separated from my pack. Like I've, I've thought this through, like this is where I'm going, this is when I'm going, this is when I plan to reemerge. If I don't, something has happened to me, right? And that's a lot of weight to give an editor, but we have that type of trust <laughs> in some ways. Cause I was like, I have to know that what I knew was real. And so I, I went down there and I did it and I had nightmares about it for about two weeks. The guy, I went and, and took pictures to be like, yeah, the Confederate flags are still in the same place. In that piece, I talk about the guy that's watching me and wanting to ask him how to get out of here. Yeah. I go back and I take this picture because I mean, he's got a huge Confederate flag in front of his house. I mean, we are talking bigger than standard American flag size Confederate flag, like swinging from his house. And I take this picture and like maybe 15 seconds as I go to like drive off, I see him like come towards the street, which means he'd been outside watching me the whole time. And when I get home, I'm like, where is this guy in this photo? Like he has to be around. He's already outside. You know, I see him like seconds later and um, I, he's watching me over the top of his truck underneath the flag. And it's, it's this idea of being black and being watched in this way is, um, it's a little terrifying. Yeah. That's the most unique type of fact checking I've ever heard. You were almost going back to reinsert yourself into a terrifying situation to verify that you would again be terrified. Yeah. I mean, if I'm going to print this, I have to know it's true. I really do believe in that, you know, and knowing more about that park, having spent more time in that park, I was like, was it really just the terror of being lost? No, it was so much bigger than that. And I needed to know in writing that, that that was the case, if that makes sense. So it is the combination of the dogs, the flags, the and here's the thing, there was no dog this time, there was no burning this time, still scared, still scared as hell. But my goal at the end of that was to reclaim this space if I could stand it, right? Um, and that's why I had Gloria give me half the day there. And I took the chair that I wrote the essay in and I sat in, there's this big field as you near the ranger station. 
And I sat there for an hour and I wrote postcards to the Black explorers that I mentioned in the piece. And I wrote a postcard to myself, basically saying that terror and trauma does not have to be the end of your story. It gets to be what you want it to be, you know, but scared as hell as it did it. But yeah, um, you know, I had to know. And I also had to know, I didn't have a picture of the two pine trees that I'm talking about. And that's um, a John Muir quote reference. And I had to make sure that the pines really were pines and I didn't make them up in my imagination and stuff like that. Like that, that stuff really does matter to me. I've had one correction in like five plus years of reporting. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, it is one of those, you, you have to be, well, because like as a black woman, I think people are always looking for ways to discredit you sometimes anyway. Like you have to know that you know, that you know what you know, because they're always looking for a reason to not credit you or not appreciate you or whatever, right? And I think that now is maybe true for media at large because of everything that's happening in our country right now. But, you know, you really have to prove to people that you have done the work. And I've done the work and done all this fact checking and they're trying to discredit me anyway. Right. They're trying to yeah. tell me the things that I felt were not real. And perhaps I have not looked at it from a white person's perspective. I've gotten 40 plus emails like that this time. I, I saw you tweet about that. That was yeah, that's, that was the last thing I was going to ask you on the outside piece, actually, was like you wrote this for a more specific group of people who had written you letters, asking for your help, right. asking for your advice. And now, I mean, it, it shouldn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me that you hear from 40 people who say, like, have you thought of this from the white man's perspective? But w what do you think when you get those? Yeah, it, it is that they read to, re to react, right? Like they read defensively in order to say something to me, right? They didn't read it to sit with it. They didn't really read it to understand it. They didn't read it to empathize with me and with people that look like me that are trying to inhabit these places and recreate and honor these places. Um, they sort of skim it for the points that they were looking to make. There's nothing to argue with in right? that piece. That's, it's not an argument. It's it, But all of this is a figment of my imagination, right? I've got to be making it all up, right? And sometimes people write about the pain that it causes them as white people and how it hurts their feelings, right? And I was like, I wish you could understand how much this hurt to write, to tell people that believe in you, that trust what you have to say, and have taken the time to reach out to you, to tell them that there is nothing you can do for them, right? Nothing that you can give them that doesn't make it seem that it's their fault, right? Like, I, I explicitly write that line. I was like, this is not your fault. It's not. And that's important because I don't think... I don't think that that's said to black people sometimes. You sit at home and you, you know, our parents have the talks with their kids and, you know, you see the interaction my mom has with the police in that piece and, and all the things that we learn from it. But something that we never learned is it, it was not our fault. And I see having lived in South Carolina and having investigated some of these systems, exactly how things are set up. And not everyone has had the experience of 
disembarking off of the Alabama River in Montgomery, where slaves ended their transatlantic voyage, and then walking to the slave warehouses where they were split apart from their families, and then walking to the center of town where the block would have been that they would have stepped up on and been sold. Like that is part of the work that I do is doing that. And I've done it in Mobile twice. I've done it in Montgomery twice. And I've done it in Savannah once, right? And so I'm grappling with this long arc of history, right? Of enslavement and then Jim Crow laws. And then this over-policing of a community and dismantling of any sort of support that Black people have had. And so there are things that I see and have experienced. And this is what I mean by bridging the academic and the historic with personal ex- and like lived experience and trying to, to fuse these things together and do it in a way that readers can understand. And so in this way, it, it comes across as an epistle, right? And Paul does these in the Bible. So I'm drawing a little bit, you know, on that. But I'm trying to reference things older than America to let people know that they can survive things that are bigger than America because anti-Blackness is happening a lot of places. So I'm playing a lot with those sorts of things. I'm playing with, again, in that medieval strain, medieval French poets like Marie de France um, and her laustic about the nightingale is doing this push and pull and tug with love and nature. I'm trying to take some of those forms and if it's a body, knock on the chest of it, pull out the power saw, split it in half and insert my own structure inside um, that is readily identifiably Black and a Black lived experience, but like wrapped up in this much nicer, probably neater looking thing. One, I mean, one of your most memorable pieces for me is this garden and gun piece from earlier this year about about the farm and what's what's happened with it. And so maybe tell everyone a little bit about what that garden and gun piece was was evoking and and what's going to happen now. Yeah. Oh, man. So the Garden and Gun piece is called A Dream Uprooted, and it is about the walk that I took in January of 2020 when I had to say goodbye to my father's section of the land, to say goodbye to his farm as I'm getting ready to sign the auction papers. And I talked about it a little bit in this, but my dad died without a will. I have another much older sibling that did not grow up with us that thought there was lots of money there um, and wanted his fair share. My brother and I signed everything over to my mom because we didn't in our views, it didn't belong to us, but you know we have to pay off this other sibling. And so I've been sort of throwing my freelance uh, salary, which sometimes is not much, sometimes is you know everything, at trying to save this place and kind of upkeep it and maintain it and hold on to it. And I realized I can't do that and I have to let it go if I want to create some sort of future for myself. So I go walk the land one last time and talk about everything I learned in this place, talk about everybody that's around me and my concerns for it, because we are a land-rich, kind of money-poor family. And so, you know, if some corporation wanted to come in and buy my spot, and then they could buy up all the spots around my family, and that is, we quickly become a people without a home place. Um, Mm -hmm. And everything that that means, and it is just my chance to say goodbye to a dream I had of putting a writer's residency 
in that space. You know, I still have my dad's gold pickup truck because I thought that, you know, that would be the marker outside. Um, and so I'm giving up this land, but I'm also giving up part of my identity. I'm going to have to take fifth generation farmer out of my bio, right? And I don't know what to replace it with. And I have to hope that I get to do some of the things that I wanted somewhere else. And it is my acknowledgement of the fact that my community and the foodways and traditions I grow up with are leaving and I don't have anything good to replace them with. There's no story from the Bible that can get me through this type of suffering. So at least I can tell you about it. So that's a dream uprooted. And you had told me an email, like you, you have sold the farm now. You, you did end up selling it. Yeah. So I signed the seller's papers the day that the outside piece came out and that's what a day, right? Like it was really hard for lots of reasons, but specifically because this outside piece will be, is the thing that has given me permission and may give me the time, money, and space to write about the thing that I've lost, that I spent all of this time writing and trying desperately to save. So it's basically gone now within the next 30 days, like somebody else's name will be on it. Somebody else will be living in it. And I have no reason to travel that road anymore. Like my grandmother died the week that the A Dream Uprooted piece came out with Garden and Gun. And so those two walking, talking tomes of knowledge in my life are gone now. Well, I hope you do get to write about it in the full way that it deserves. Thank you. And that you deserve. Um, thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time, and it's been, it's been great to talk to you. Yeah, thank you. That's this week's episode of the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, your co-host. Thank you to Latreya Graham for taking the time to speak with us. I really, really enjoyed that conversation. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern, Susan Peterson. Thanks to MailChimp, our sponsor, as always. We'll see you next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. 
In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.